good morning. We are continuing our studies in Colossians 2. If you would, turn your Bible there. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. We're continuing our study on the supremacy of Christ. Last week, Paul warned the Colossians not to be led astray. This week, he will hit on that topic again. He will also continue to hit on the topic of the supremacy of Christ. That's the theme of the book, the supremacy of Christ, his preeminence. Jesus, Paul will say, is all you need. Everything else is nonsense. And Paul will go on to tell him how great Jesus is. And he's done that, right? We saw this in Colossians chapter 1, the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. But it's not like that was an exhaustive list. There's more to tell you about who Jesus is, and not even the book of Colossians can confine that. In fact, John, the apostle, wrote that if we just write all that Jesus did, the entire world could be filled with the things that he has done. So this is not an exhaustive list, but Paul continued to tell you, tell us how great Jesus is. We'll see this in verse number 8 through 12 in Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised. For the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised, with him through faith in the powerful working of God, and raised him, who raised him from the dead. Now, if you're here your first time in a long time and you're wondering why on earth we're talking about circumcision in the sex, we're just going line by line, walking through the passage, and it's just what it says. So we're gonna have to hit on that today. Next week, encourage you to come. We have communion. It's gonna be fantastic as we get into the next three verses. But let's see what Paul tells us today. There are two major points, the beware and believe. First, beware. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In verse number 4, Paul warns the church in Colossae to not be deceived by plausible arguments. Don't be led astray. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good. Paul warns them again in verse 8. Some translations have, you know, see to it, beware, uh, take heed, be careful. All of those are right. They're, they're trying to get you to be on guard, right, to have somebody on watch at all times. That what you're hearing may not be truth. We, we understand this today, right, we call everything fake news. It's just all fake news. And so just be on guard. You, to be able to hear things, either on the TV or while reading a book, or while listening to a friend, or while reading a post that they put up, be able to see, read, and hear, and think, is that truth? Is that truth? Be on guard. Be alert. Beware. And, and be on guard for what? What should the Colossians be on guard for? What should they be, what's threatening them? Paul says philosophy and empty deceit. The philosophy these false teachers were spewing was it was fake news. It was nonsense. Paul wanted them to see this as such. He also goes after human tradition, which uh, most Baptists, right, in our church would say, well, you know, that's why we don't like this such and such church, because they have traditions and we don't. Oh, don't we? <laughs> right? I found out we have traditions when I came here, when I suggested we should do away with that, and all of a sudden it's like uproar. Like, I don't, is that in the Bible anywhere? No. But it's what we do. Oh, is that what Jesus does? No, it's what we do. Be careful. 
That tradition is not what's guiding this church. What should guide our church? Jesus. What he wants. Not what you want. Not what we've done. We want Jesus to be the guide of our church. And he's talking about human tradition, and he continues with this phrase, elemental spirits of the world. Well, on earth, does that mean? Some translations translate elemental spirits as spiritual forces or spiritual powers. And both of those are good. They both help us understand what's going on here. In Colossians 1.16, Christ is over all powers, and Paul says specifically, visible and invisible. The seen realm and the unseen realm. Right? We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, blood, but against principalities and powers, as Paul said to the church in Ephesus. So this includes demonic powers, angels, the false gods. In, in 2.10, Christ is the head and has rule and authority over all of these. So when you get down to chapter 2, verse 18, and Paul tells them, tells the Colossians not to worship angels, this starts making sense. The reason why you don't worship them is because Jesus is over them. He is superior to. They are not gods. They're not the God. They were created by God. He is God. He is preeminent. He is, pre- he is supreme. So we worship Christ. And we worship Christ alone because he rules and he reigns over all powers, visible and invisible. He reigns over spiritual powers and forces of the world. So Paul tells him, beware. Be on guard. That the things that we see, they, they're so easy to creep into our lives. As the church is seeing in Colossae, it's easy for the things of the world to creep into the church, isn't it? The things that we stand for, the things that we get up in arms over, sometimes it's easy. The outside world starts, it starts coming in. How do we get to this stage? Somebody's not on guard. We lost our watchman. Well, that's the pastor. He's supposed to be on watch. No, that's the church, collectively. Because I can be led astray just like you can. That's why Paul tells the Galatian church, if I preach any, any other Christ, if I preach another gospel, you should kick me out. You should be done with me. If anybody talks like that, be done with them. Be gone. So beware. Also believe. Point number two, believe first who Jesus is. Verse number nine. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The theme of this book is the the supremacy of Christ. He is preeminent over all. We've seen numerous reasons why Jesus is supreme, why he is preeminent. Paul continues to show us more. One of these, he's the whole fullness of deity in bodily form. He's the whole fullness of deity in bodily form. What, what does this mean? We, Paul uses this word again, as I made note to, mention to you, fullness or filling. It's this word pleroma. It's, he's, he's full. He's bubbling out. Like, uh, like when a child fills up his orange juice glass in the morning and fills it up and keeps tipping, and parents are watching this, and you're trying to rush over there because you know what's coming, don't you? Just... <laughs> They thought they could just get, you know, there's this much left, and they poured in three cups to get the last quarter inch of their cup filled. It's just filling, and it's brimming over. Jesus is just brimming over. He's so full, he's just brimming over deity. The apostles got a taste of this on the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't they? 
It's like his skin is barely holding him in. It's like just shiny. His deity, his, his godness is just shining out. But he's fully God. He's 100% God. He is not less God than the Father. He's not less God than the Spirit. He's not more God than the Father and more than the Spirit. They're equally 100% God. In John 1, 1, we are told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the reason why that's essential, because in John 1, we see that Jesus was God before he became man. By John 1, 14, and the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, when he took on flesh, he did not cease to be God. He continued to be God. He has always been God. Before he became man, after he became man, he just added to himself humanity. And God became wrapped in the flesh. So he's completely and entirely God. And it says that Jesus is not just fully God, but he, again, he added this to himself. In verse 9, it says he dwells bodily. Paul's reminding the Colossians of this truth. Jesus is 100% God. He's 100% man, fully God, fully man. He's also, in verse 10, called the head of all rule and authority. We've already drawn attention to this, that he, he rules and reigns over things, everything visible and invisible. We have seen who Jesus is. Now let's look at what he does, what he has done, verse 10 through 12. So let it be what Jesus has done. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him, Jesus, from the dead. What has Jesus done? Let's look at verses 10 through 12 and just focus on that aspect. What has he done? He fills us. He spiritually circumcises us. He allows us to be spiritually buried and raised with him. So first, he fills us. Again, this is that same word, that pleroma, that, that brimming out, just so full. He's overflowing with deity. It's that same word. One's a noun, one's a verb. He's, he fills us. Jesus is fully God, and fully God was infused into bodily form, right? Fully God just took on man, and now we are filled by Jesus. He fills us. And we'll get into what that means that he fills us in a few minutes, but here the word, it's, in a, it's a perfect passive tense, so it means it, it's passive, it happens to you, and it's perfect, which means it's complete. It's done. It's not something he's going to do. It's something he has done. So another argument, you want to chalk it up to reason 6,438 as to why you cannot lose your salvation what Jesus has done is done. It's perfectly done. He's already filled you. The moment a person trusts Christ and makes him Lord of their life, it's settled. It's settled. Uh, so Christian, you're, you're struggling with that. If you place your faith and trust in Christ, rest assured on Jesus' promise that he will do what he said he would do. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. We looked at Colossians 1.23, right? We looked at others where wondering, is there a root, right? If there's no fruit there, check the root. But there's a good question for you to ask there. But if you've been wrestling with years and years and years, I've, I've trusted Christ, I've trusted Christ, and man, I feel I have to pray every other day. Friend, trust Christ to do what he said he would do. He will keep his word, even if you don't. He will keep his word. Look at the Israelites. How many times did they keep their word? Yet who is still their God? 
It's the same for us. Look at what Jesus said. He fills us. In verse 11, we also see that he circumcises us, spiritually circumcises us. This is a circumcision. How do we know it's spiritual? Because it says in verse 11, it's made without hands. It's made without hands. There are a number of verses in the Bible that show us that circumcision was not always physical. And it's not always what God wanted. So he had them do this process in the children of Israel. But what did he really want? It wasn't the outward that he wanted. What did he want? He wanted the inward. And so you see, even in Deuteronomy, when the law is being given, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, in Deuteronomy 36, in passages like Jeremiah 4, verse 4, all these references are to, sure, we can cut off that part of the body, but I'd rather we remove the flesh around your heart. It's not physical. He's talking spiritual. Remove the rottenness around your heart. I want you to have a circumcised heart. This is what Jesus does for his children. He removes that flesh. He removes the power, the flesh that once held us captive. Remember in 122, where Christ reconciles us, means he took us, those that were enemies, and he makes us not just friends, but family. He reconciles us. Now look down at verse 13, because we see in a similar way, Jesus does surgery on your heart spiritually. He removes the deadness that was there. He cuts it away. He makes room for new life. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses, which we'll get into next week, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together. He has to cut off the rottenness, the part that was antagonistic to him, the part that was dead. He cuts off to make life to give space for new. It's like removing a rotten tree and planting a new one. So he does this for you. He removes that spiritual rottenness, the part that was antagonistic towards him, the part that warred with him. He removes it. You were against God, unable to respond. And he surgically removes that aspect, and now you're able to respond. So respond accordingly. So in Christ, we're also, not just circumcised, in Christ, we're also buried. In Christ, we're also raised. One of the members sent me a passage this week that spoke to this in Romans 6, 3 through 5, which we read two weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I think. Do you not know, Romans 6, 3 through 5, that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried. This is that picture that we do for baptism. We were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We will get to what this means in a few minutes, but you must understand that had Christ not died, there is no salvation. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Had Christ not been raised from the, from the dead, there is no salvation. That Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Jesus did not come out of the grave, you are wasting your time. I have the worst profession on planet Earth. I'm selling people a bill of goods. So it's, just, it's all fake news. If Jesus is still in the grave... We know historically he lived. That's a fact that even atheists agree to. We know historically he lived. We know historically he died. And there's over 500 eyewitnesses that saw him alive. 
We know he's alive. And if you trust Christ in your Savior, then you spank on this, man, I've been buried with him. I've been raised with him. I will see him again. Because it is Christ in me. He's the hope of glory. He's the one that I can look to still. We've seen who Jesus is. We've seen what Jesus has done. Now what does that mean for you? What has he gifted you? Because in these verses, we see Christ has gifted us with much. First, he's gifted you, in verse number 10, everything you need. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled in him. You've been, some translations, you are complete in him. You don't complete Jesus. Right? Do you complete Jesus? You're the one thing that he's been missing his entire life. You don't complete Jesus. What does Jesus do? He completes you. He completes you. It's almost like a puzzle that has a thousand pieces. There are 990 of them are all edge. And there's one piece in the middle that completes the entire thing. Jesus completes you. We can look and we can see God and the creation around us. It's almost like we have this border, boundary. I know there's something out here, but I'm just, I'm not getting it. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and he completes us. He fills us. And more than that, remember how I said, because we talked about this fullness of deity dwells bodily. Remember how I said that Jesus is fully man. He's fully God. He was dwelling on earth. Remember when God dwelt on earth with man and he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve? And what did Adam and Eve do? They sin. They choose, I don't want God's rule and reign. I'd rather, we'd rather be our own gods. They sin. And what happens? God kicks them out of the land. The Israelites find themselves in slavery in Egypt. God brings them out in the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory of God. God is with man again. He leads them out, leads them into the land. And they get a chance to worship him. He's dwelling in the tabernacle. God is with man again. And what does man do? Give us another king. What? Let somebody else rule over us other than God. And then they did not just want another king, but then they wanted other gods. And they sin, and what happens? They kicked out of the land. And they lose that relationship with all of a sudden they're separated again with God. Jesus comes. And God dwells with man again. And what does man do? They crucify him. Blaming him for blasphemy. They crucify the Lord of glory. And what does he do? He takes all of our sin. Puts it on himself. And dies for us. And if we accept his gift of salvation, we are promised his presence forever. But friend, if you reject his good gift, then you will be removed from the land. And you'll be forever separated with our Savior. But Jesus came to bring God's presence to us. For those that are here that know Christ their Savior, you know the indwelling presence of God. You say, man, how sweet it is. 
to have God with me. Never leave me. Never forsake me. And I promise to see him and be with him the rest of life. So we turn to Christ. When we do, we not only have the presence of God with us, but for all eternity. And since Christ became man and dwelt among us, he also provided an example for us to follow. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 said, because Jesus knows what we are going through, we can come to him. He's not like a priest that you could go to and talk to and say, Father, do you know what I've done? And he says, no. Do you know what I'm going through? No. Can you feel what I feel? No. When we come to Jesus, do you know what I'm going through? Yes. Can you feel what I feel? Yes. And in turn, he could ask the question, have you gone through what I've gone through? No. Have you felt what I felt? No. But can you feel what I feel for you? Yes. We can. This is the greatness of the fact that he became incarnate. He became in flesh. He dwelt among us. He brought us his presence. He also brought us an example to follow. Jesus has given you in essence, everything that you need. And he fills you, and he completes you. That's why we come boldly to the throne of grace. And maybe you're still wondering, what, what does it mean then to, to complete us? One author said it means that there's nothing lacking in a believer's relationship with God. There's nothing lacking with a believer's relationship with God. God pours his love and power into believers, giving them fullness for this life and readying them for the life to come. Believers need not look anywhere else. Christ is a unique source of knowledge and power for the Christian life. You need not look anywhere else. He's given you everything you need. He's given you his presence, Christ in you, the hope and glory. He's given you everything you need to succeed on this planet until you see him face to face. He's also gifted you a clean soul. Look at verse number 11. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We saw earlier that Christ performs his surgery on our soul. He cuts away the rottenness of our flesh. He cuts away our opposition to him. He cuts away the deadness that was in us. And I don't get this confused because it doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. Because maybe you think, well, does this mean that because he did this, this spiritual surgery means that we don't struggle with sin anymore? One author answered this well. It said to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, to have the circumcision done, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, that is their joy. To be without sin is not now their privilege. In this present life, the flesh remains to be mortified. And we'll see this in chapter 3, because Paul still tells us, die to the flesh and put on, right? Put on holiness as beloved children of God. Our hatred of God has been removed. We've been given life. We've been awakened. Many of you know the author John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And I love this statement that he wrote that fits this well. He wrote this phrase, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you identify with that? I am not what I ought to be. Don't you know that? Don't you feel that in your bones? I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but I still 
I'm not what I used to be. For by the grace of God, I am what I am. He cut off the deadness, the antagonistic hatred of God and brings us new life. But still, till we see him face to face, we have to fight. We have to finish well. By the grace of God, move on, press forward. He gives us a clean soul. He also gives us a new life. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. By accepting Christ with the Lord, we are buried with him. We are raised with him. We're buried with him in baptism. When a Christian is baptized, they're buried beneath the waters we already discussed, and they're raised up out of the water, as Paul talks about in Romans 6, 3 through 5. This is one of the reasons why we get baptized. It's not the only reason, but it is a reason. Bunch of reasons. He commanded it. That's a good one. When he commanded you, make disciples and baptize them. Tells us how to baptize them. We see baptism always follows. It's always volitional. means it's always willful. I can go to the pool in the summer with my children, and I can baptize a lot of children. Right? I baptize my own a bunch. But it's not willful, because <laughs> I'm a horrific father, right, who's dunking my own children in the pool. That's not willful. That's not of their own volition. It's always, baptism always follows repentance in Scripture. Because once somebody acknowledges Christ as Lord, then they want to obey Christ as Lord, and so they follow Christ as Lord. And when they follow Christ in believer's baptism, they are portraying this example of being buried and being raised. One commentator said of this, he said, the convert does not remain in the baptismal water. He emerges from it to walk in newness of life. Baptism, therefore, implies a sharing of Christ's resurrection as well as in his death and his burial. We're sharing in this. Just like Jesus was buried and raised, I, too, want to be buried and raised. I want to be raised with him. And so we come up out of the water. baptism. Getting baptized here does not save you. It just identifies you. It allows you to identify with Christ publicly to say, I want to be like him. I want the world to know I want to be like him. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ by the powerful working of God. This working, the same power that works in the resurrection of Christ also works in you. Paul even used the same word in Colossians 1 verse 29 where he said, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So this power of God to raise Christ from the dead is in us, but it's not just for resurrection. It's for life. It can be used today. Paul says, this is, everything I do is tapped into this power. I have one plug. It goes into that outlet. And it's the power of God that raised Christ from the dead that allows me to do anything that is of him. That's where I get that power from, is from Christ. So it's not a question of if Jesus has given us enough. It's if we're using what he's already given us. So what does all this mean for us today? And what can we apply to our lives? Let me ask you a few questions and we'll let you go first off, friend. Has Christ completed you? Has Christ completed you? Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? He is God made visible. He's God in the flesh. His presence is promised to those that trust him. 
that believe in him, will you do so today? Remember the warning that those that refuse him and, and his gift of salvation, he forever kicks out of the land and they're separated from God for all eternity. Turn to your creator. Turn to your savior. In him alone, you will find rest. If you have questions about that, I mean, see me afterwards. See Christian friend that you came with who'd love to talk to you about what this means to trust Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. If you're here and you have received Christ as Lord, let me ask you a few questions. Are you struggling to trust Him? Are you struggling to trust Him? Do you feel like His ways are antiquated? I mean, in our day and age, the Bible is being assaulted on a regular basis, and Christians, people that used to profess to be Christians, are turning and saying, what the Bible says, that's not what that means, or I'm just going to ignore it, or I'm going to pull a Thomas Jefferson, I'm just going to cut it out. I don't like it. God is so antiquated. This is such an old book. But in, in the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and, and the word was God, and this is where we learn about him. This is the truth. I'm not the truth. These are God's very words to us. Do you, are you struggling to trust his word? Perhaps a new thought, a new philosophy is leading you astray. Beware. Be on guard. Everything you are hearing Putting it through the funnel of the word of God. Is this truth? Is this truth? Next, Christian, how does your soul look? Christ may have circumcised the rottenness of your flesh, but we still have to die to self. Our hatred of God, our inability to turn to him, that has been removed. But we still struggle with sin, don't we? If you don't struggle with sin, come sign my Bible afterwards. I mean, seriously, don't, we, don't you still struggle with sin? How does your soul look? Read chapter 3. You're allowed to peek ahead. Go ahead, read chapter 3 and look through what Paul talks about. If you've been raised with Christ, have you been raised, as he told us in this text, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Put to death evil things. Put on like Jesus put on flesh, put on holy, beloved things. How does your soul look? Next, in verse number 12, we learn that we were buried with Christ in baptism. As a principle, Christian, I gotta ask you, the, the text is right here, I'm not trying to bring anything up, but if you're here and you've never followed Christ in believer's baptism, you know, or of your own will, you've never followed him into those waters, the question's gotta be, Why? Why have you never willfully made that choice for yourself? If it's a command from God, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obey. Simply obey. And it allows you to identify with your Savior as well. You can be buried with Him. You can be raised Him to walk in newness of life. So I encourage you. Because if you think through, I mean, some of you, I can only speak to the baptisms that have happened here within the last three years. But we've had young and old, haven't we? We've had, uh, we're not going to say who's old, because I just thought about that. It's like we're getting ready to give examples, and I want people to get, it, get after me. But we've had young and old get baptized, and it's a precious, sweet thing. 
And sometimes people think it's just for children, but brother, sister, let me be honest with you, I've been blessed almost in a sense more so by adults willing to say, I want to follow Christ. I want to follow him. I don't care what this looks like. I don't care what it says. I want to follow him. It's a blessing to the church. It's been a blessing to me each and every time, young or old. Lastly, let me ask you one last question. What response do you have for your Savior? He has filled you. He's given you everything you need. He's dwelt bodily. He is your example to show you how to live this life. Spiritually, he has circumcised your heart. He's made you new, given you new life by bearing you and raising you to walk in newness of life. So your response is, what? Do we not cry out and sing hallelujah? What a Savior. Those are words. When do we put that into action? Go live as if you've been completed by your Savior, not by your job. Go live as if you've been fulfilled in Him, not by peer pressure or by friends or by popularity or by your hobby. Go live as if He is Lord. Proclaim Him to the world. Is He not great? Has He not come to dwell with us? Do we not enjoy His presence? Shouldn't he, should we not tell others? Let's bow forward to prayer.